And a very special hour of power for you tonight on yet another day of widespread looting in South Africa. We're going to be talking to the country's premier futurist, the man who gives us the high road and the low road. And indeed, he's got some very good insights for us this evening. Clem Sunter, he'll be dominating the first part of our show. We'll also be talking with Stephen Nathan. Uh, we will have some insight into how this whole development, how the looting, how the attacks on communities and the defense by communities are, is likely to affect uh, legislation in Parliament where the ANC is trying to disarm South Africans. And uh, then we'll find out from uh, shopping center owner Francois Marais uh, about safari, how safari has fared. Safari has got shopping centers in many of the former black townships. But before that, we're going to be picking up on the markets. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, let's start with the news headlines. Here's Nadia Swat. Deadly protests that erupted in South Africa following former President Jacob Zuma's jailing showed no signs of letting up, even as the authorities pledged to clamp down on the violence. Hundreds of stores in the KZN and Gauteng provinces, which account for about half the nation's economic output, were looted and major highways have been blocked. The government says 10 people have died. KZN Premier Sitle Zikalala put the toll at 26 in his province alone and his Gauteng counterpart, David Makura, said there had been 19 fatalities in his jurisdiction, including 10 that occurred during a stampede. More than 2,500 soldiers have been deployed to Gauteng and KZN to quell violent looting, but the Defence Minister has stated that SA is not yet considering a state of emergency. Dubbed Operation Prosper, the deployment will be from 12 July to 12 October. South Africa's COVID-19 vaccination program has been partially halted due to the violent protests. State-administered inoculations have been suspended in KZN and parts of Gauteng, said Nicholas Crisp, a consultant to the National Health Department who is helping oversee the program. The disruption is the latest blow to a rollout that's been criticized for its late start and remains at a nascent stage. French authorities have fined Google 500 million euros after the search giant failed to follow an order to reach a fair deal with publishers to use their news content on its platform. According to France's national competition regulator, the Alphabet unit ignored a 2020 decision to negotiate in good faith for displaying snippets of articles on its Google News service. The fine is the second biggest antitrust penalty in in France for a single company. Officials at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration warned of a rare but serious neurological disorder linked to Johnson & Johnson's coronavirus vaccine. 100 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome have been reported among people who received J&J's vaccine, the FDA said in a statement. Health authorities continue to stress that the J&J vaccine is safe and that its benefits outweigh the risks. The warning is another black mark for J&J's shot, which has also been connected to cases of rare but serious blood clots. And let's hear what's going on in the marketplace, or rather the investment markets. Here's Justin Rowe Roberts. The JSE All Share Index was lower at 66,900. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 14 rand 58 cents to the dollar, 20 rand and 17 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 23 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,814 an ounce. A Kruger rand is trading at around 28,000 rand. Brent crude is up at $76.20 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 470,000 rand. After a positive start to the trading week, JSC-listed financials, retailers, and property counters were sharply down on the back of widespread looting. Banks, seen as a proxy for economic conditions in a country, were all down with South Africa's largest lender first rand of 6%, its largest intraday loss since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic. Tonga Hewlett was out with results earlier. Market commentators were eagerly eagerly awaiting news on the sugar refiner's debt and operational issues, which has been communicated to shareholders in previous announcements. A crucial inflection point is near for the company, as a 2 billion rand liquidity shortfall will need to be covered by land disposals or an equity raise by shareholders. After being as much as 7% up intraday, the share is slightly down for the day now. 
And in the U.S., Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan reported strong quarterly earnings minutes ago. The results were largely expected by the market, and the shares are off around 2% for both counters in the morning session in New York. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Tuesday, July 13th, and this is your FT News Briefing. We've got more details of David Cameron's relationship with Greensill Capital. And U.S. banks report their latest earnings this week. J.P. Morgan Chief Executive Jamie Dimon said it was the best quarter ever for investment banking. But what about lending? I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Former UK Prime Minister David Cameron received a salary of more than a million dollars from Greensill Capital. That's according to FT sources. Greensill is the supply chain finance company that unraveled earlier this year. Cameron joined the firm in 2018 as a part-time advisor, and he used his political capital to try and secure government funds for Greensill. After the lobbying scandal was exposed... Cameron told British lawmakers as part of an investigation that Greensill paid him far more than he earned as prime minister, but he didn't say how much. Now, FT sources say his contract with Greensill to work 25 days a year means he earned a little more than $40,000 a day. Big U.S. banks announced second quarter earnings this week with J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs out with their numbers today. According to one industry forecast, average quarterly earnings per share are expected to jump more than 100%. But the big profits aren't coming from the traditional business of lending, and banks will likely face tough questions about that. The FT's Imani Moiz has got some answers. She joins me now. Hey, Imani. Hi, Mark. So what likely drove earnings this past quarter, if if not lending? One of the big drivers this quarter was definitely investment banking. Uh, about a month ago, Jamie Dimon was at a conference and he said it was probably the best quarter for investment banking ever. And what's happening there is you're seeing a whole bunch of companies with a whole bunch of liquidity because of the, some of the stimulus programs. And they have these really healthy balance sheets and they're hungry for growth. And really the best way to do that is to buy something. Um, and there's also the SPAC boom. So that's helping bank profits out a lot this quarter. So, Imani, what's happening when it comes to lending? So what's going on with lending is that the banks really, really want to lend out some of the excess liquidity that they've accumulated on their balance sheets, right? Because all of the stimulus programs have largely ended up back with the banks. And banks make money by lending out deposits and charging people for borrowing. And not there, there hasn't been much of an appetite for borrowing these days, mostly because of those stimulus programs, which have kept consumers afloat, given corporations access to a lot of cheap capital. So there's not a lot of reasons for people to borrow right now. So what we're hearing quarter after quarter is that banks keep pushing out the timeline that they expect borrowing levels to return to pre-pandemic levels. So that's something that everyone, investors, analysts is going to be watching out for very, very closely in bank, bank results this quarter. Now, aside from lending, what else are you keeping your eye out for this, this earnings season, Amani? Right. So I think this season, everyone is very much focused on reopening, right? And it, it's, it's gone from theoretical to right now. So I'd be really keen to listen out for if any executives can provide any updates on their reopening plans when it comes to branch counts. Are they going to consolidate any branches uh, or not open as many as they previously said they were going to open just because of the way so much has started to happen digitally? So has that impacted any of their real estate decisions or anything like that? Imani Moiz is the FT's U.S. banking correspondent. Before we go, some tough news for coffee drinkers. Your morning cup of joe is probably going to get more expensive. Coffee bean prices are jumping higher, and a big reason for this is that the world's leading coffee bean producer, Brazil, has been hit by the worst drought in a century. That's led to a supply shortfall, and last month, future prices for Arabica beans, the kind grown in Brazil, shot up to a four-and-a-half-year high. Higher prices haven't dripped down to consumers yet. Roasters and coffee buyers purchase their beans anywhere between three and nine months in advance, so they've locked in lower prices. In their next contracts, though, they'll have to swallow the bitter taste of higher prices, and then they may have to pass that on to consumers. 
But before you get too jittery, take the advice from one commodity strategy expert who said, just drink it and enjoy it. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Clem Santa is with us. And, well, Clem, we need to get insight from you. Uh, it has been a insane day for South Africa, for many South Africans not knowing what's going on. I'll just give you a, a, a small anecdote. I have a sister-in-law who lives in Peter Maritzburg. In their area, uh, many of the residents last night were protecting the entrances to the area, uh, concerned that the mobs might decide to go into the suburbs and start looting homes. That's how crazy it's become. What is going on in our country? Well, Alec, you know, I feel more that it's about the desperation of the moment we're in, because even before uh, the pandemic, uh, the life of most people in this country was very hard and there was a very high rate of unemployment. I travel regularly from Somerset West through to Musenberg on the coastal road. And when I look at Kailicha uh, on my right, I, I, I'm, I'm not one of those people who says, oh, gosh, how awful. I actually say every single one of those people has built that shack and has, and, and, and has opened a shop on the side of the road. And they're doing the best they can. And unfortunately, the pandemic has really had an impact on all this activity. And yeah, um, as people were saying last night, there was a spark, which was the imprisonment of Jacob Zuma. And then suddenly people saw an opportunity of, of, of looting shops, which obviously is absolutely wrong and unlawful. But it shows that we have got to do something about our economy right now because it can have an impact for many years. Clem, uh, I'm sure you watched the pictures as I did of the looting that was going on. Many of those people certainly didn't look underfed. They didn't look like they were having such terrible hardship. Are, are, are you saying that the, the reason why they looted is because of economic circumstances and frustration, or is it because they were hungry? I think it's, as you rightly say, a combination of people who are not that badly off, who saw the opportunity but also it was the opportunity for desperate people to probably get their hands on food. Obviously, there's, there's two sides to this, and there's community resistance to this, and, and, and thank heavens there's community resistance uh, to it. But what we haven't seen is the kind of revolution with leaders speaking from political platforms or anything like that. It, 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 it was an opportunity that... Uh, widened very quickly to uh, a large number of people. And one of those reasons, without a doubt, is the fact that our economy at the moment is uh, in a very dire shape. We've, we've run out of money. We've had years of corruption. Um, and now we're paying the price. And, you know, this, this event, which I call a flag, um, basically is something we've got to pick up on because it's an indication that the worst-case scenario has increased in probability. You've just finished a book, Thinking the Future, Clem yeah. Santa and Mitch Ilbury. Why yeah. did you write this book? What was the, the, the point of this one? Yeah, Mitch, Mitch is um, the, the son of Chantel Ilbury, with whom I've, I've written three books on foxes. And what we decided to do in this book, Alec, is uh, concentrate on the philosophy behind the, the, the whole approach that we advocate, which is that you look at the future considering multiple futures, which we call scenarios. You look at the flags and then you assess the probabilities rather than try and forecast and predict the future. High road, low road from here. The, the two scenarios we have in this book is a people's economy where Cyril, in fact, uh, sets up the same kind of command council that he has for COVID. He does the same thing for 
trying to introduce a much fairer, inclusive economy. And he would include quite a few entrepreneurs on that uh, on that list. People like Adrian Gore, who've, who've, who've uh, founded Discovery, people who know what it's like to set up a business. And he would put the same kind of passion into that as he has done into trying to protect us from, from COVID. And we would have regular report backs on how many new businesses have been formed in the townships, how many banks have set up micro lending facilities, how many websites have been turned into e-stock exchanges in the, in the, in the major cities, how, how much of a supply chain of a big business like Pick and Pay and, and Checkers has been uh, focused on generating entrepreneurs. Those are the kind of statistics that would be regularly reported on because the only way we're going to create jobs now and get out of the um, appalling unemployment situation is to uh, put a huge emphasis on new business creation because the old world of work is over. You, you have automation, you have robots, you have artificial intelligence, and that's why big business everywhere in the world is no longer creating the jobs of the last century. Indeed, the latest statistic in America is that two-thirds of the jobs being created there are in small business. So it's not a sideline. It's not something which, yes, you can talk about. Uh, it's got to be turned into the number one priority for South Africa. Did you watch him last night, Cyril? Yes, I did. I did. And yeah, Does he look I, like a man with ideas to you? Yeah, look, I think that he has he, he has mentioned small business and he's mentioned it in a very positive sense. But he's now got to go much further because, you know, I want uh, 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 these people who are desperate at the moment. And I agree with you. There was a mixture in that crowd looting. But I want the people who have felt totally desperate to have a chance of improving their lives. What is the low road uh, from particularly in the in the light of what happened has happened over the past few days, especially yesterday and continues? The, the question there is right at the beginning when you said the odds of the low road, the odds of it happening have increased uh, after the developments of the past few days. So what is the low road? What is the alternative to a people's economy? Right. The second scenario I'm reading from the book we call cautionary tale. Here, South Africa experiences rising popular anger caused by an economy that is stagnant, exclusive and cursed by a dismally high unemployment rate. This leads to further disunity and widespread violence with a possible endpoint of total anarchy in the chain of causation. So there you have it. Um, and, and we're saying the steps being taken right now are going to have a huge influence over whether we increase or diminish the probability of that scenario. We're, we're, we're in that moment. And, 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 and the, the, the whole point of scenario thinking is to try and get as many people on board in what I call, we, well, we call, Mitch and I, the circle of control, to get as many people on side in that circle of control on what has to be done so that you can influence that wider world outside. And just as social media has, has created this completely different world uh, in terms of creating momentum for so many different movements, we want to create a movement for um, entrepreneurship and creating economic inclusion in this country. Because I go back to my point, the classical approach of the last century of just using big business to create uh, new economic activity no longer works because we have moved on in terms of automation and other technologies. So you want to bring the unemployment rate down to 10, 5 to 10% in South Africa, we've got to create uh, this entrepreneurial economy. And the, the thing which, in a sense, depresses me is that we've got so many talented uh, entrepreneurs in the township. I've been into Kaidicha. I've seen them. They're, they're, they're fantastic. 
and, and they're running small businesses. And, and what Cape Town municipalities should be doing is saying, here are the top 1,000 entrepreneurs in Kailicha. What are we going to do to bring them into the mainstream economy? What are we going to do with all those entrepreneurs in rural areas? who are adding value uh, to agriculture in order to grow their businesses. In fact, my company, Anglo, did exactly that with a, a project called Zemeli, where they, they looked at which suppliers they could back to produce goods for our mines. And, and, it, and, and it really, really worked because there are so many talented entrepreneurial people out there. I've talked about one for a long time called Siubalela Zuza, who was a, a, a student that we interviewed for the Anglo Scholarship Scheme. And he actually won a NASA award and had a minor planet named after him because he created a rocket fuel that was more energy intensive than NASA itself. We've got those kind of people in this country. Elon Musk is a, is a product of South Africa. So why aren't we really pursuing this? with the same passion that we're pursuing uh, the, 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 the fight against the pandemic at the moment. Well, I think we know. <laughs> I think we know that very well. And, and uh, it's been well documented and well articulated why we aren't pursuing that. We have a political party that has a different ideology. But getting back to the point in the, that we, we're at right now, you say that the decisions taken now, are going to determine whether we go the high or the low road. What is the those decisions? Just help us through to understand what flags we need to be looking at as members of the public that are going to take us on the high road and then alternatively on the low road. Well, probably the most important flag is that we we have to see what can be done, as I said, from ground up to... Uh, allow the small businesses that already exist in huge numbers uh, in South Africa to really grow because we have removed the barriers of bureaucracy. Uh, we, 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 we have not allowed uh, big business to uh, dampen the prospects of those small businesses, and we've created uh, a, a much better environment for finance to be offered uh, to entrepreneurs, either by the big banks forming a micro lending bank or maybe through e-stock exchanges. Uh, we have to, secondly, uh, obviously run our state-owned businesses like proper businesses with, with CEOs who understand the game that they're in. It, as you rightly say, cannot, cannot be caders uh, of the ANC that run these businesses. They've got to be run by proper people because as China showed, if you get your infrastructure right, you can grow your economy at 10%. When I went and did a, a, a lecture at the Central Party School, the inner sanctum of the Chinese Communist Party in, in Beijing uh, in 2006 to show them how scenario planning worked, uh, they said to me, uh, we've got the motto of Deng Xiaoping all over our walls in our lecture rooms because he did two things for China. He said we've got to do everything about our infrastructure uh, to, to provide the platform. And secondly, we've got to allow individual Chinese to create wealth. This is the Communist Party saying that. We've got to allow individual Chinese to create wealth. And those two things that Deng did meant that China moved from the 100th ranked economy, 100 in 1978, to number two today, and possibly becoming number one in, uh, in the, the, the 2020s. So they have done what Russia hasn't achieved, what uh, Venezuela, Cuba, and all those countries that are still um, completely uh, sort of overwhelmed by old-fashioned socialism. They haven't done that. The Chinese saw the light, and we've got to see the light by running our, our state-owned businesses in a way that provides that uh, platform. And then obviously, as we've both agreed, you've got to have law and order, um, and you've got to stop corruption because it bleeds the economy. And, and as we can see at the moment, we, 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 we've run out of money. And, uh, and so there's got to be a real, real, real um, 
uh, sort of uh, commitment to this by actually sending people to jail. And then lastly, the whole of our last chapter of this book is on education, because in the end, that is what determines a nation's future prospects, is the quality of its education system. And uh, Japan showed that, and Singapore's shown that. You've got to put far more emphasis on providing the kind of education with the latest technologies that are available today that will have a chance of creating the kind of people who will become successful uh, entrepreneurs. So, yeah, these are the kind of things that have to be done. And obviously, one's got to watch the flags, uh, like what is the Gini coefficient of inequality? Is it going up, which was a, obviously a red flag? Is it going down? Uh, and we're becoming more equal. That would be a flag. And then the number of new businesses uh, being created, um, the unemployment rate itself, all these are flags which Cyril should regularly go on television and, and tell us about, like he's doing at the moment with the pandemic. And if he doesn't? If he doesn't follow your, your game plan, if they remain with the existing game plan, uh, which well, is pretty well documented, what happens? Well, as I say, yesterday, and you, you agreed, uh, Alex, was just extraordinary. And it was a really red flag. And it shows that the decisions made right now are probably going to have an consequences for decades to come, as we say in this book. And therefore, you know, we, we, we have to do, we, we, we have to do some extraordinary things now uh, to get us on the right track. Tim, you're a national treasure. And I, I, I say that in, in all uh, honesty, we, many of us look to you for guidance and for insights and, and thanks for sharing this with us so passionately today. But if you were to put the two scenarios, if you're able to even do this, uh, the, the high road and the low road that you've articulated for us today, what are the odds as we stand today after uh, the chaos that has occurred in the last uh, few hours? Well, when we wrote this book, Mitch and I, I would given it maybe um, 70, 30, 70 percent uh, we'll get to a people's economy, 30 percent um, maybe um, we'll, we'll just dismally fall away into the cautionary tale. Now, I think those odds have been reduced to 50, 50 uh, on the two scenarios uh, between people's economy and cautionary tale. And, and that's the whole point of the method that we put forward. It's it's, it's, the future is unpredictable. So you've got to watch the flags and you've got to change the probabilities. But most important, you've then got to do something about it. As, as one of the chapters in this book says, it's about thinking and doing. You, if, 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 you, if you just uh, think, you don't change the world. <laughs> you've got to think and do. And that is why... In, the, in that chapter, the two giants that we have are Nelson Mandela and Steve Jobs because they both turn their creative thoughts into action. Tuesday, Stephen Nathan is our guest co-host. Uh, when we have a look at what's happened over the past few hours, I guess everybody's scratching their head. Stephen, having a look at it from an investor's perspective, the RAND has been resilient against all this bad news. Is it a little bit like you sitting in Cape Town not really knowing what's going on in KwaZulu-Natal and the global investment community uh, in England, they're still worrying about having lost the European Cup and, and the racism that's been thrown at the, those poor young lads who, uh, who certainly didn't try not to score the penalties. In the United States, they've got all their own issues that are going on as well. Are we just uh, off the radar for the moment. I think I think there's so much bad news, as you say. You know, there's so much bad news in general happening. So we've got the whole the whole uh, uh, you know COVID pandemic that's driving uh, that's driving global sentiment and dominating the news. And we know that uh, there's concerns about um, 
uh, infections increasing even in the UK as they're relaxing uh, lockdown rules. So, so you know, we're living in a very negative environment at the moment. So you're really putting, you know, one more negative story, as you said. There's the poor English footballers and you know, and 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 the fallout over there, uh, and and you know, there's turmoil in many countries to varying degrees. So I think it's something where at the moment it's just getting lost in a sea of negative. Uh, negative negative news um, there's no question that uh, that you know there's a uh, there's a monetary cost to this and people are already talking about the billions of rands of of damage that's been done so there's a monetary loss and unfortunately we all pay for that loss you can say yes but they're insured but you know ultimately someone has to pick up the tab uh, and then that feeds through into higher prices for consumers at some at some point so we all collectively pay the cost and then there's this enormous damage of confidence uh, and I think that's, you know, th- that is something that uh, that if we don't get on top of this sooner rather than later, uh, then that could do some serious damage. And maybe, you know, uh, uh, the markets uh, to some extent are saying, let's wait and see. You know, it's only been a few days, uh, but let's just see which direction this takes. If we get things under control and we do stem uh, the looting and we are able to restore law and order in a reasonably uh, short space of time, and I would say that would be certainly uh, within a, you know, uh, the next few days, uh, then I think we're going to be okay from an investor sentiment perspective. But if this escalates, uh, you know, then obviously uh, that'll be a different environment. And I think investors would then start to take a far more negative view on, you know, South Africa Incorporated, on the RAND and on in, uh, investing in South Africa. I've just had a fascinating conversation with Clem Sunter, um, one of our best known futurists, not just in South Africa, but in the world. Uh, who refers to his recent book, which almost predicted this. On the one hand, uh, he talks about the high road that South Africa faces if it embraces entrepreneurship properly. He calls it a, a people's economy. On the other hand, the low road towards anarchy. And uh, his conclusion was that the events of the past couple of days have uh, increased the low road prospect from 30% to, say, 50%. Um, it is a frightening prospect of, of this continuing and indeed becoming anarchy uh, in the long term for South Africa. What's your thoughts on the way Clem seeing it? Uh, well, I think that um, you know, if, we, if, we, if, we, if we look at the data, if we look at the facts, you know, we know that South Africa has, uh, has been trending downwards uh, for a long time. You know, a lot of us sort of point to the last 10 years. Uh, and we can look at you know economic indicators. We can look at, and we've spoken about this uh, before. We can look at uh, real uh, uh, GDP, what we call economic uh, uh, output per person, uh, and how that has fallen over ten years. Uh, so even ten years ago, we weren't in a very strong place. We still have a very unequal society. We know that uh, South Africa is one of the most unequal societies in the world, uh, and unfortunately, we haven't done a huge amount. Uh, over the last 25 years to to improve that so the 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 sort of benefits of of um, uh, democracy from an economic perspective uh, have not been widely distributed so if we look at all of the sort of the the financial and economic indicators they've been worsening over time and i don't think it comes as a surprise to anyone uh, that uh, that there is um, uh, large spread unhappiness uh, uh, amongst a a, a majority, probably a majority portion of the population, and we know it's it's a it's a it's a it's also the younger population who are more likely uh, to to um, take action if they're disappointed. If you're older, you you know you might uh, sit back and just let things go. But when you're younger, you've got more energy, more motivation, uh, and more to gain uh, by taking action. So I don't think, in and of itself, what we're seeing at the moment is an enormous surprise. It's a huge disappointment that it's happened, and it's also a huge disappointment that uh, that government wasn't able to predict any of this. I don't know where the, the sort of the government intelligence uh, uh, are in this whole uh, issue, uh, and that they haven't been able to 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 address it. So uh, I think Clem's got a sort of high high road and low road. Uh, I think we've. Uh, I certainly believe we've been on the low road for a uh, a, a long time. I'm not sure that you can just say there's a low road and a high road, but we certainly haven't been doing the right things for a long time. And uh, I did hear your interview with Clem, and as you said, it's it's you know the ANC has to change its policies uh, because unless you know if they're stuck in the the uh, the same policies that we've been 
uh, that have been implemented over the last 10 and 20 years, uh, we can just look at the results of that. And, and unless we change those policies, and unless there's a, a structural uh, change, then unfortunately, I can't see us uh, changing the current trajectory of the path that we're on. Something on the business front, we've uh, seen financial results from Tongart today. Now it's in the business portfolio. I wondered if you had any thoughts there. It certainly looks like they are coming to some kind of terms with their bankers and that the plug's not going to be pulled and the, the whole edifice won't implode, which I guess would be good news uh, given the asset base. Uh, yes, you know it's very difficult, Alec, when you see these 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 large companies, uh, and you mentioned the asset base. You know, Tongart has uh, uh, sizable assets. Uh, you know, not only on the agricultural side, so not only on the sugar side, but also on just the land, the land size. Um, you know, and when you see a company like that get into such enormous uh, difficulty, uh, it's quite hard to sort of work out. Uh, um, uh, you know, what what value is there? Because I think they've got. Uh, Debt of is it about twelve billion rand? No, of it's down now. It's, it's down a it lot. Down? It's down to between six and eight. And the problem was okay. that they were supposed to bring it down further, um, but uh, they haven't managed to achieve what they were the, the below the eight billion uh, rand mark, and that's what's causing some friction with borrowers and concern amongst investors. Yes, yes, and then also the value of their property. Is 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 I mean we we talking really short term, but it's not you know uh, the current looting and the instability. Yeah, is it not hasn't gone up. Anyone, anyone, days. anyone, anyone owning property, especially especially located in you know in uh, the KZN area. So so you know um, you know I think I think the lesson you know the lesson is when a big company stumbles, it probably takes a bit longer than you expect. Uh, for that company to uh, to to recover, um, and I don't know. Uh, I'm not very close to the company, so I don't know who owns the debt. Um, but that's also becoming what's quite interesting in 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 sort of recent times. And we're seeing this a little bit with Steinhoff, and there's been examples. There's a really interesting book out about Caesar's Palace. It's kind of who owns the debt, and the people that sort of end up owning the debt are these uh, distressed uh, debt funds. Uh, you know, so they aren't the people that you lend to originally. They might be the fourth or fifth person who buys this debt uh, in the secondary market. So it's debt that's already been issued, and they buy that at a big discount to its past. So if it's issued at a, a, a rand, it, they might pick it up at 50 cents or uh, 60 cents in the rand. Uh, and then they can become very difficult to negotiate with. So I don't know, uh, Tongart, whether they have that potentially to to uh, to deal with, you know, but uh, as you say, this is a company that in its heyday, you know, the share price was uh, uh, something like uh, well over 150 rand. Uh, it's now at about seven rand fifty. Um, so it's a company that inherently, uh, uh, you know, if they can deal with the debt, you know, there's definitely value in their sugar operations and there's definitely value in the property. So you know, one's probably got to be a bit patient. And if 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 if, if a company isn't able to do things in a couple of months. Uh, it's probably not the end of the world, uh, but obviously they don't have investor confidence. So, so, so the less confidence people uh, have in in the business, the less uh, leeway they're going to give you. Uh, you know, but hopefully they do, as you say, manage that debt in the next uh, uh, certainly this financial year. Uh, and it's a difficult one to say because, say, if they can get this business going uh, and operationally, then then you know you're buying the business at a very very big discount if they can sort out their debt. Well, on a day when chaos reigns, when citizens of South Africa are wondering how they're going to protect themselves, uh, we have a very appropriate discussion. And uh, Gideon Joubert, who's spoken with us at numerous periods in the past, um, will be giving us an update on his side. He is um, fighting against proposed legislation which would remove firearms uh, from many South Africans and the ability to carry a firearm. And Nicholas Lorimer, who's with the Institute for Race Relations, which is a, a liberal think tank that's been going on for a long time, has just written a piece today on the same subject. We've been reporting and talking with people in KwaZulu-Natal where mobs are entering shopping centers, looting, breaking down, setting alight whole buildings, on the basis of uh, that they can. Uh, and I guess that the police have been standing by and watching. If South Africans were properly armed, uh, your, uh, according to 
um, I suppose, a view that everybody should be allowed to, to have a firearm. Would this violence have not gone completely out of control? Because if shop owners were sitting with automatic weapons, for instance, uh, the mob might be fired on and uh, we would have all kinds of crazy carnage. I'm trying to be a devil's advocate here to understand what it is that is happening today and how ownership of guns is going to make it better or worse. So uh, without wanting to go into any form of absolute statements, because that would be uh, entirely fallacious from my my point of view, I can't say that, you know, having a, 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 armed and trained society is going to be a causal factor and it will make everything better under under situations of of near unprecedented chaos. I mean, this is certainly the most chaotic I've seen the Republic in, in my rather short lifetime, uh, although there are people a little bit older than me that may have seen it uh, similarly or worse. What is evident from what we are seeing happening and from what I'm being told by community members in KZN is that the SAPS is spread so thin on the ground at the moment as to be almost non-existent. They can respond with limited impact to specific flare-ups and hotspots, but the communities in general, now whether these are people living in suburbs or or in other form of, of residential areas, are essentially on their own. And what is quite alarming is that we're seeing attempts at ingress by uh, mobs of rioters and looters in trying to gain access to these communities, whether this is to actually loot homes or whether it's to set fire to to homes with people in them, it's without try- wanting to sound too academic. It's 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 horrific. It's a horrifying situation. And the one thing that has prevented this, and I know for a fact that this is the case in Reservoir Hills, where I've had a lot of people in the community policing forum make direct contact with me. As, as well as many other areas where there have been businesses and actual residential neighborhoods protected, the only thing that prevented that from happening were coordinated, trained, ordinary civilians who had guns, who could form defensive lines and perimeter p- perimeters. And without anyone dying, no one has been shot and killed by these armed civilians, but by the display of force, as well as their willingness to use force as a last resort, as well as their own internal coordination, that has served as a, a physical and psychological barrier that has prevented those communities from being overrun. And I think that is the point that we must bear in mind, is this is certainly not a case where you want people with almost as in, as in a Middle Eastern country with a, a 50 caliber machine gun on the back of a Toyota Hilux driving around and, and, and adding more fuel to this fire, but, but to rather have these sorts of disciplined, well-coordinated, uh, adequately equipped people with so much skin in the game because they are essentially looking after their, their, their own families, their neighbors, their neighborhoods. And that as, as a opportunity cost or rather as an opportunity benefit, a positive externality also takes the pressure off law enforcement because that's now a community that actually has managed to secure itself. The law enforcement resources that should be looking after it can focus on the bigger picture and try and get that under control. So, there's much to say, Alex, <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, that's how I would approach it. Do you think that, uh, Nicholas, maybe starting with you, the events of the past 48 hours uh, might be something of a watershed in this, i.e. that uh, there would be a realization in Pretoria that you can't disarm uh, civilians when you have these kind of uh, threats that, that are very real to their security? I don't think so. I think that the ANC has been stuck in a sort of status quo for a long time now where it's having a lot of difficulty in changing direction on anything. Um, I think if something is going to change the fire, the, the way that it approaches firearms legislation, at least this particular amendment that's currently going through the pro- uh, legislative process, um, it's the massive pushback that's been received from civil society, uh, from political parties against this piece of legislation. That might cause a rethink. But as to these events, um, you know, we've, it's not the first time in South Africa we've had people blocking highways, burning things, attacking the police, destroying shopping centers, and that hasn't changed policy yet. So I'm not sure, but I, I hope it does because I think it would be a good thing. Kirian? 
I'm going to agree with Nicholas that it's definitely not going to change the ruling party's mind, but where it is most certainly having a significant impact, and I've already seen it today from a retail point of view, people who previously wanted nothing to do with guns are suddenly thinking very seriously about them and thinking seriously about them in a, in a positive light as opposed to in a fearful light. So I think it has a, it's most certainly having a, an intellectual and psychological effect on, on the population and citizens at large. And ultimately that's going to be the neck that turns the head that is the ANC. So I'm, I think it, it is having a positive imp- impact, but it's, mechanism of operation is, is, is not very direct. Well, not politically very direct. You mentioned Reservoir Hills. Where is that? It's a suburb in Durban, and I need to get my bearings because I am not particularly tuned into the geography of the Durban metro. Um, but it is a, a, a middle-class suburb in Durban. I believe it's, it's near uh, Buertas Hill. Although I might be very and, much mistaken, and the 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 people there you say have have got together with their firearms to to ward off they the have, mob. It's a very mixed community. It's a, a very large Indian community with a, a white section to it, as well as a coloured section to it. So it's quite multiracial, and they have had a very very tumultuous relationship with one of the informal settlements bordering on them. And it's quite an interesting one. There are three informal settlements immediately bordering Reservoir Hills. And it's only one that is the source of, of the, the most amount of tension with within the community or between those communities. And it's unfortunately that they've had historic problems before where the shops and uh, Places just at the entrance of the the suburb were looted, and this was attempted again. So there is no police presence, from what I can gather, to assist them. So the community is very much on its own, and they've had to organize their own sort of community defense, for want of a better word. And from what I'm gathering, to very effectively, although also to the detriment of the people who are staffing it, it's exhausting work and stressful, as one can imagine. So are they lining up outside with automatic weapons? Well, not automatic. And uh, I don't think all of them are equally armed as well. But those that do have guns are, have, the, have the firearms on them. Uh, they have formed several lines of defense or layers of defense, as they refer to it. And they have coordinated plans in order to distribute resources, food, water, look after the elderly and the more fragile and, and keep them uh, keep them safe as a priority. And then also attempt or rather to prevent looters and rioters from getting into the suburb at, uh, at the one major entry point. It sounds like we're going back hundreds of years to the Middle Ages uh, where you had to protect yourself uh, and against all kinds of threats. Absolutely. And one of the major complaints they've had is when they have communicated with the police over the past two days about the situation, they were simply told that the resources to respond do not exist. They they do not have the personnel to spare. And they have that in writing. I have seen, seen them obtain it in writing from uh, the local cluster commander. So it's essentially, it's essentially the, the SAP saying, we don't have people to help you. Sorry, that's just the end of it, and it's it's a shocking indictment. But if you look at the 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 series of budget cuts that visible policing and the SAPs in general have been subjected to over the past three years, um, if you put if you put inflation into the picture, it's between thirty and forty two percent of purchasing power within the SAPs gone in a three year period, with the VIP protection budget being increased. Um, the police have been in trouble for a decade. The National Commission admitted in October 2018, before the budget cuts, that it was impossible for the police to fulfill its constitutional mandate, which is a mere four points of, of securing the citizens of the republic and their, their property. And unfortunately, those chickens have thoroughly come home to roost. And we can, the proof of the pudding's in the eating, I'm afraid. Francois Marais is the founder of Safari, one of the bigger investors in South African uh, township shopping malls. Francois, I've been thinking about you uh, watching 
the developments of looting <laughs> and things that are happening in South Africa. Uh, what kind of an exposure does uh, Safari have to the areas that are, are now at such high risk? We've got three, three problem spots. The one is Denlin in Mamalodi, and the other one is Nkomo in uh, Athusville. And those two have been looted slightly, to put it uh, gently. Uh, nothing severe. Our worst case is um, we have to replace some broken glass, but otherwise the uh, insurance covers uh, the loss of stock from the tenants, but it's nothing severe, nothing compared to what's happened elsewhere in the country. The one in Sevaking has been hit more severely. There, um, there's been looting and looting going on, and it's nearly coming to an end now. But again, our own loss is only the broken glass of the, of the shops. But somehow the uh, people that looted got over the fence and came in and they're busy there. But we sent a special task force from our security guys that handles these type of uh, occasions, these type of happenings, and they are busy getting it under control. But Mamalodi and uh, Nkomo is well under control. In all likelihood, this, those two centers will probably open, if not tomorrow, then the day following. The other one might take four or five days to, to recover and to repair the, the broken glass and, of, of course, for the shops to be able to stock to be stocked again. It sounds so different to what we're seeing happening in KwaZulu-Natal and in parts uh, other parts of Gauteng. It's very different. We've been most fortunate. We've had no uh, acid that, that hasn't happened at all with us. Uh, and I think, in part, it's because we've kept a very special relationship with the local population. We've had, uh, over the years, very good relationships with them. And uh, as a result, I think that has also been bearing the fruits. You know, in Mamalodi, there's also the Mons Mall on the eastern side. And that's been very heavily looted, and there's also been arson there. But we haven't had the problem at all. But there would be people who own shopping centres in KwaZulu-Natal, uh, in rural areas of KwaZulu-Natal, who would tell you that they've had fantastic relationships with the communities and the community yeah. doesn't seem to care too much in those areas. No, I, I can't understand it. You know, uh, I, I must say that at uh, Denden and at Nkoma Village, uh, we've had very good support from the police, unbelievable support together with our security people. But last night wasn't a pleasant night. I know our centre managers didn't close a wink. They were there all the time. And, you know, Dirk, he's also been on the phone, I think, most of the night. I think he slept something like two hours only. So we've kept a very sharp eye on what's happening there. But um, it's unfortunate. You know, we, we do have these places fenced in. And although they managed to... Per perpetrate that in a few places it wasn't in any way severe and I think that is in part the, the success that we've had the uh, the mall in, in the east of Mavalodi, uh, Mom's Mall that has been very heavily uh, you know uh, damaged and also there was also partly arson there but um, in Pretoria I think we're fortunate you know the ANC has just uh, circulated, I read it now over lunchtime a, uh, circle, they sent a circular to all their members, it's 170, 107 councillors, and they said that they must, the, the public must support the police and they must report anything that they see that is in any way sort of funny. So in that way, there's been very good cooperation, I think, also from the public. I don't know what the situation is in Soviet as far as that's concerned, but in Sobekeng, for instance, to give an idea, we haven't had arson at Tabong, but uh, there's Everton Mall or Everton Plaza that belongs to uh, Resilient, and they've been, also there's been arson there, and they've been heavily looted. And the same with the center in Orange Farm. So it, it is fortunately for us different at our centers, very, it, very fortunate. Is it just luck, or have you planned or handled things differently? I think we have handled things. We've got very good uh, security on site always, all the time. And they do have uh, 
special units to, to handle things like this. So, uh, you know, because the police, their uh, assistance in, in Sivakeng was very poor. They they quite scared, in fact. And the funny thing is this, although Ramaphosa has spoken about allowing the, the army to assist the police, nothing has happened yet. If they've done that, it would have been very different already. I can't understand why they're hesitating with that, because nothing has been deployed. So you're not seeing the army at all uh, having no. a presence or at least stopping the no. looting? No, no, none. In fact, the, the Minister of how do you say, minister of Defense, she uh, just over lunchtime we read the, uh, what she announced on the news that she hasn't deployed yet. She's still considering it. Now, obviously, this sort of uh, dilly-dally thing will get us nowhere, you know. But uh, KwaZulu is terrible. What's happening there is really, really horrible. You know, um, SA Corp, SA Corporation, holds, I think, 17 uh, properties in KwaZulu, and they've been very heavily arsoned and uh, looted. So uh, KwaZulu is very different. To Gauteng is not to, <laughs> it's not pleasant. I know in in Alexandra there has been quite terrible what's happened there. But uh, compared to what's happening in KwaZulu, there's, there's no comparison. Why would that be? Is it is it that it's there are just too many people who are attacking in uh, attacking the malls in uh, Alexandra and in KwaZulu Natal compared with where you are? I think so. Look, uh, Alexandra is a very different township to where we are. Um, fortunately for us, uh, you know, for for where we are, but. Um, KwaZulu, I don't know what's happening there. You know, everybody seems to have gone crazy. And, um, you know, people say Zuma is behind this. I believe the guy that's instigated this is uh, Ace Magashuru. I think it comes from him. Francois, what advice would you have for other property owners who are in the hot spots? The one thing we've always believed in and that we've applied is to have a, a proper security fence around the property with gates that you can close if there's trouble. We've had trouble in the past and we've successfully closed the gates each time it happened. This time they managed to break a few things and as a result of that they could get in. But essentially the, 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 the fencing that we've got, the, the palisade fencing that we've got, is still in good shape and they haven't really been successful in breaking that. But if you don't fence it, if it's open, then of course it's open to the public and anything can happen. And I would certainly never do that. And and the kind of security teams that you have, maybe in contrast to others? You know, I don't know much about what the, the other people have got in terms of security. I know our security is costing us around a million a month, if not, if not more by today. Yeah, uh, I'm talking of figures two years ago. Um, but we've got very good security, and they, they are well organized, and that's the essence of it. If you don't have that, then, uh, you know, you, you're looking for trouble. So, and you, you, you must talk to a company that's got a good uh, right assistance, a special unit for that. Because the police are not going to help you. As we've seen, the police have just been watching. Why would that be? Are they just not well <laughs> enough uh, equipped? I think um, in Sevaking they were totally uh, too few to do something. You know, there were not enough, uh, uh, how do you say, uh, staff to handle the, the situation. It was very different as far as that's concerned in Pretoria. Very, very different. And we've also, all, all the years, we've kept a very close relationship with the police, which is obviously as important. So working together, uh, which seems to be the future, perhaps, from what you've told us, if you're going to have a shopping centre, make sure that it's fenced off uh, so that you, you can protect yourself against this kind of issue. But I guess for many people, that's not, it's not really possible. You think about uh, many of the malls that have been attacked in KwaZulu-Natal, in smaller uh, smaller towns and so on, even in bigger towns in Durban, uh, none of these have been fenced off. Uh, and I suppose that does give you an indication of what could happen. 
ownership, most certainly. I think any any major center that you've got, unless it's in, in the old CBD areas, <clears throat> but even in some of those areas they've been rooted. But otherwise, as far as you can go, you must always try and fence it. You must have like a, an area around the perimeter that people can't penetrate. In other words, there's certain places where they can enter and that's it. You, you you don't uh, you, you you can never manage a thing like this uh, in an open space that is looking for trouble. Always. So it sounds a bit like 16th century moats around castles. Just about. <laughs> the only thing is we, we don't have the moats yet. <laughs> Thanks for being with us from the Biz News team. Look forward to being back in your company, same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.